Let's pray together. Lord God, you are a God who invites us in Philippians chapter 4 to make our requests known to you. And the promise that we find there is not that uh, we will receive everything that we ask for, but that the peace of Christ will guard our hearts and our minds. And we thank you for that peace that you provide us. And with that idea in mind, Lord, I, w- I want to pray uh, first just for some current events. Um, we pray for what's going on in Israel and Palestine, and as a result, what's spilling over into communities all around the world right now. Um, we pray, first of all, that there would be peace in this conflict, that you would bring it to an end. Um, we pray for secular Jews, that they would come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. We pray for Palestinian Muslims, that they too would see that Christ is the only hope. Um, we think about children in Gaza, Lord, and we pray that this conflict would not uh, take too heavy a toll on their psyche. We pray for Jewish people around the world who are receiving uh, just anger and hatred over the circumstances that are unfolding, and we pray that you would be with them. Lord, we pray that you would bring your will to bear on this situation by bringing peace and reconciliation And Lord, we pray that more than anything through this conflict, that Christ would be magnified and glorified and many people feeling afraid and in despair would look to Jesus and would find in him the hope that they need. And Lord, we pray for our church that we would truly be a people that are passionate about helping people meet and follow Jesus, that our Desire would be for our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors here in Maricopa to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is great joy in obedience to him. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up your word and we study this parable in Luke 15, that we would come to trust you and love you more. Lord, I pray for those who are far from you, that they would repent and turn to you. I pray for those that are self-righteous and religious, that they would find grace. And so, God, speak to us through your word and lead us by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So again, hopefully you're uh, with me now in your Bible in Luke 15. And today we're going to be looking at a parable that uh, in your Bible maybe has the heading, The Prodigal Son. This is one of those really timeless stories, I think. Even if you were not raised in the church, it might be a story that you're familiar with. Certainly, if you have been around church for a while, you've heard the parable of the prodigal son. And it's one of those stories that is so profound that it is worth coming back to. It's not the kind of story that you read once and go, nice story, and you set it aside. Um, Even if you've heard this story a hundred times, it is one that I think is worth giving attention to again. So we're going to read this together beginning in verse 11, but I actually want to bring in two other verses. So in Luke chapter 15, look first at verse 7, and then we're going to skip down to verse 10, and then we'll read from 11. In verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, Jesus says again, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus said, this is verse 11 now, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. If you wonder what the word prodigal means, it means reckless Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, I want to try and maybe think just a little bit differently about this parable today. Because again, although your Bible probably puts in here the heading, the prodigal son, the heading I think is a bit misleading. Um, Just so you understand... Jesus didn't put the headings in here, and actually Luke, when he was recording this, didn't put the headings in here. That is your Bible translator trying to just help you remember kind of a flyover of the story so that you might be able to find it again if you want to come back to it. If you look at verse 11, 
that's where you see how Jesus himself sets up the parable. And he tells us in verse 11 that this is a story about what? A man who had two sons, not one son. Jesus does not limit this story to one particular character. Actually, he's very clear there are three characters, right? There's a father, and then there's a younger son and an older son. And so I think there are three lessons for us in this parable, not just one that maybe you've heard about a son who wanders away from God and finds his way back to the father. From the father in the story, I think we learn about the goodness and the love of God. That is probably primarily the way we approach the story of the prodigal son. And then from the younger son, we learn about the healing power of repentance, which I think is also an important part of the story. And then I would say, finally, from the older son, we are taught a lesson about the ruin of self-righteousness and religiosity. So I want to work our way through each of these. We'll begin with the younger son, and we'll kind of just make our way through the story. We'll begin with the younger son, because that's where the story begins, right? We very quickly learn that this younger son is a self-centered idiot. I don't know that there's any other way to describe him. Maybe that could have been the heading, the story of the self-centered idiot. In verse 12, we're told that he goes to his father and he actually demands from his father his share of the inheritance. And it is a demand. It is not a request. The verb here in the Greek is actually an imperative. That means that he is demanding, Father, give me my share. And it probably should be obvious what an insult a comment like that would be to your father. It's disrespectful, I think, for a child to demand anything from his father. But this is particularly insulting because if you know anything about the way inheritance works, particularly in the context of the Old Testament or the world in which Jesus is living, you don't get your inheritance until your father dies. And so this demand actually suggests that the younger son is saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I would rather have the money that's coming to me than the relationship that we have as father and son. And this is really hard-hearted cruelty if you think about it. It's callous rebellion from a son towards his father. And it's made even worse by the fact that what What would possess a child to even make a request like this from his father? You know what I think it suggests that this boy knows about his dad? That his dad is the kind of guy who would take an insult like that, receive it, and then actually give to the son what he asks. Isn't that astounding? See, many fathers, if their son were to treat them like this, would probably take them out into the street to have them publicly flogged. At the very least, they would cut them out of the inheritance, right? In response to this kind of disrespect. But the son, in asking the question, shows that he does not fear that this is how his father will respond to this kind of insulting request. Which means he knows his father is a gracious and generous man. 
So the younger son takes advantage of his father's grace, and I think that makes the level of disrespect even greater. And the father consents, he divides up the inheritance, and uh, we see just how deep the self-centeredness of the son then goes. In foolishness, he packs up his belongings rather quickly, and he heads out to a far country where he won't have to encounter anybody from his family that might uh, point to him the embarrassing decisions he's making for his life. And the ESV says that he spent his property on reckless living. So that word reckless in other places in the Bible refers to debauchery. So we can assume here that included in this reckless living is all kinds of sexual immorality, drunkenness, pure hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, all of the things that the flesh might desire. This young man spent his money to provide for himself. What is driving him is the allure of pleasure. And he reminds me a little bit of Esau from the Old Testament, if you know that story. Esau is a man who was set up to receive a big inheritance from his father as well. And one day he goes out hunting and he comes back hungry. And you know what he does? He sells his entire inheritance for a bowl of soup because he's hungry. And the hunger of pleasure has a grip on this young man as well. Because I think the fast pace of the story there, as you read in verses 13 and 14, impresses upon us that this young man spent a considerable amount of money in a shockingly short period of time. He blew it awfully quick. And then we find that when the money's all gone and the fast times have passed, they're followed by hard times. And the younger brother is on the brink of starvation. Now, I guess he's got a little bit of character because he goes out and finds a job. So I guess that's maybe the one thing in his favor. He manages to find some work, really dignified work, right? Feeding pigs. Now, again, if you know anything about Jewish culture, then uh, you would understand that the Jews listening to this story envisioning this young man, who in their mind is probably also a Jew, feeding pigs only adds insult to injury regarding the foolishness of this son. This would be an offensive detail. Jews were forbidden from eating pork, and they saw pigs as being unclean. And so if you're working with unclean animals, you are, by virtue of the work, also unclean. And so verse 16 is a nice short verse, but it communicates a lot. Here's a young man who has sunk about as low as you could possibly go. Having deeply insulted his father and then foolishly squandered his wealth on fleeting pleasures, he's now brought himself to the brink of starvation and he is envious of pigs. Have you ever found yourself jealous of pigs? Can you imagine looking at the filthy slop that pigs eat thinking, that looks delicious. If only I could just get a little bit of that. 
And if you think about that detail, you might be tempted to sort of feel bad for this young man, to have a little bit of pity, pity or compassion. John is shaking his head, squinting, no, no. And no, we shouldn't, right? We should have no pity or compassion for this young man because this is not the result of circumstances that he was unable to control. He has come to this place by his own will. And it's perfectly right then for him to be in this miserable place as the consequence of his own choices. And he's only actually proved himself to be, through his decisions, that which he now envies, a pig. Now, as people often do when they hit rock bottom, that's the moment where they wake up and they realize, you know what, maybe it's time to make a change. Maybe I've been playing the fool. And so verse 17 tells us that the young man comes to himself. He realizes that his father has many servants who are treated better than he is treated. And the young man suddenly remembers just what a good man his father was before he left his father's house. And in fact, you know, I mentioned a minute ago that he already knew what a good man his father was because he thought he could ask for his inheritance and get away with it. And actually, in this moment, he shows that he knows his father is a good man because he actually believes that he can now make his way back home to this father he has so deeply insulted and say to him, Father, take me back. And he actually thinks his father will receive him home. This is an astounding statement about what kind of good guy the father is, that his son even knows this already deep down. And it does make me wonder why the son couldn't see it before, but that's the nature of temptation and pleasure and sin, isn't it? that it blinds us to the truth, it distorts everything, it entices us with false promises of satisfaction that it never ends up truly delivering to us. It causes us to forget all of the good that is already right there in front of us to go look for pig slop that we think will somehow be better. And it leads in the end to ruin. And I think the moment when this younger son finally gets it is there in verse 19, if you want to look. Of course, the apology that he begins to formulate and rehearse in verse 18 is also significant, but verse 19, I think, is where he finally really gets it. Because in verse 19, we see him come to understand that the most significant thing that this young man has lost or given up is not the riches of an inheritance, but the loving relationship that he had with his father. He's no longer worthy to be called son because of his actions. And I think this is a tragedy far greater than the squandered wealth. And now perceiving this truth, the younger son decides to actually return to his home to presume upon the goodness and mercy of his father and ask that he would be taken back as a hired servant. 
So before we look at the profile of the father and his response, what do we learn from the younger son? Well, I think obviously Jesus would have us understand that the pursuit of pleasure only ever leads to ruin, to self-destruction, to heartache, to pain and tragedy. I think what we have here in the sun is a picture of what I would call irreligion. I reject the good things that are true, the things of God, and instead I want only the things that I think feel good. I will pursue what I want. And that pursuit leads to reckless living and debauchery and eventually heartache. It will make you, in the end, less than a pig if you pursue only your desires with all of your heart and mind and soul. And so one lesson is don't choose to go that direction. If you are here this morning and you are giving your heart and your soul over to the need to feel good, down that path is only piggishness. We also learn, though, that humility and honesty are a great blessing. One of the beautiful parts of the prodigal son is that we find that in humility and repentance, God is willing to accept us back. As we're going to see in the response of the Father, God is gracious to those who are lowly. To those who in humility turn to him, he does not treat with cruelty. When the younger son returns home, actually what we find is that the father has been waiting for him to come back. And if you look at verse 20, what you see is that even when the son is a long way off, the father is prepared to run to him and meet him, to embrace him, to do the undignified act of running down the street to his rebellious son so that he might embrace him and kiss him and offer him love. The father doesn't go into the house to grab the switch in order to meet the son on the road so that he can give him a nice stern beating. That's what the son deserves. I think the text indicates to us that the father has been hoping actually for this outcome not anticipating that his son would stay away forever, but eager that his son would come home. And this is the kind of man that the father is, watching the road eager to see that child that he loves make his way back. And I think this is probably the most shocking part of the story, isn't it? Uh, Verses 20 through 24 tell us precisely how the father responds to his son's homecoming. And before the son can really say much of anything, the father casts off his dignity and runs to meet him. Before there's even a word said, the father seeks out reconciliation. He hugs him, he kisses him to express to his son this idea that you are still my beloved son, regardless of what choices you have made. And then after the son does get out this rehearsed confession and asks only to be received back home as a servant, not as a child any longer, instead the father gives to the son honor that he is totally undeserving of. The father no longer holds this sin against his son. 
but in his response, immediately and completely forgives his child. You know, if you look down at verse 32, I think this is amazing that in such a short amount of time, what you find is actually in that verse, the father seems to be defending this wayward son against the even totally accurate accusations of his older brother. So think about this. After the son confesses, the father restores him to full status as a son without any caveats at all. Can you fathom that? No demand for restitution where the, de- the debt must be repaid. No expectation that in time the inheritance would be returned to him as the son works it off. No required time frame for the son to prove his sincerity to the father that this isn't just some show that in another six months he'll be robbing the silver from the kitchen and taking off again. No probation period where he first should be treated like a servant and then later maybe he can work his way back into the good graces to be called a son again. No public shaming, no humiliation. The father does not even ask, hey son, where'd all the money go? What'd you do with it? He doesn't even mention the wrong that was done to him. He simply rejoices that his son has returned. The father's response to the son's repentance is tenderness and love and forgiveness and joy and reconciliation. And this is another parable that Jesus tells that is quite scandalous, isn't it? I mean, tragically, as Christians, we can become so familiar with these stories as to be like, oh yeah, the prodigal son. This is a scandal, the way that this son is treated by the father Especially when you consider that in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, do you know what the Deuteronomical law in response to a son who dishonored his parents was? Public stoning done by the whole community, the whole neighborhood, we publicly stone the son in the street. And instead, we get a picture of a father who is unrelenting in his love, willing to bear the reproach of his son's sin, eager for restoration and generous in his kindness. He is forgiving beyond measure. And if it wasn't obvious, in the parable, the father represents God, right? It is God who loves like this. This is a picture of the goodness and tenderness and love of our Heavenly Father. And of course, we represent who? The younger son. That's you. You and I, we are foolish and wayward, squandering the inheritance of being made in the image of God on far lesser things like sinful pleasures. And friends, the whole point of the story is that This is how God loves us as sinners. And this is how God will respond to us when we repent. And verses 7 and 10 tell us in this chapter that God rejoices to welcome home a sinner like you and like me. That's why I wanted us to read those verses. They set the stage for the parable of the prodigal son. 
that God rejoices to welcome back wayward people like this. Or look at verse 24, which is repeated again in verse 32. God rejoices over those who were once dead in their sin when they come to him and find life. When those who are lost come home to the love of the Father. Heaven celebrates over that. So two quick lessons before we get to the final profile of the older brother. First, if you are lost in your sin and you are far from God, I invite you to repent and to turn to him. To stop eating the pig slop when you could be sitting at the table of the father. Stop living in rebellion in a far country squandering your inheritance on something that will never satisfy you. Come home. Don't turn away from this God. Presume upon his kindness and seek him that he might be found. He will not cast you away. He will not deal harshly with you. He will not even have words of rebuke for you. He will simply embrace you and kiss you and honor you for your humility. However far that you might feel from God in this moment, Right now is an opportunity for you to repent and turn to him and find grace and favor. And you can be sure that God's response is that he's ready and waiting to run to you and embrace you. The second quick lesson here is that the world needs to hear this story. My friends, the world needs to know this story. We live in a sad and depressing world full of people trying to glut themselves on pig slop, living in sin and rebellion against God, seeking only pleasure to no end. At the bottom of all of that is meaninglessness and despair and hopelessness. And the world needs to know that there is a God in heaven who is ready and eager to embrace them if they repent. This is why our church is here in Maricopa, to proclaim this message. And there's nothing heavy-handed about it. There's nothing threatening about this message. All we are doing is simply offering an invitation. If you are weary of the pig slop, come home. And you will find there Christ Jesus who loves you. Your neighbors need to hear this. Your friends need to hear this. Your coworkers need to hear this. People here in Maricopa need to hear this message. And maybe they won't do what the younger son does. Maybe they'll just throw their face back in that pig slop and say, I'm content. Maybe. But they still need to know this is an option. That on the day when they begin to despair of the pleasure that is fleeting and meaningless, they can come home. And so I want to just encourage you and me to be bold to talk to people about the love of God that invites them to come home to the Father. And I want you to understand the way Jesus sets this up right now, right this moment, if you could peel back the veil of this world and you could see into heaven, you know what you would see? You would see heaven poised on the edge of a party, waiting for just one more person to repent and turn to Jesus 
and find this kind of hope. So we still have to get to the older brother. I find it funny that we call this the parable of the prodigal son, because if this were the parable of the prodigal son, it should end right there. Great story. Close the book. It's over. Jesus could have told this parable about a man who had one son. And all the stuff I already said would have been sufficient. It could have wrapped up in verse 24 and it would have been an excellent parable. But I would say that the parable ends with the older son because this part of the story is really, really, really important. And maybe it's most important for the kind of person like you who would be present at a church on Sunday. I do think the major point of the story is found in verses 24 and 32 that echo verses 7 and 10, right? Praise God. This is grounds to celebrate. The one who was dead is now alive. The man who was lost has been found. God's love for sinners is so great that he rejoices when even one sinner repents and comes home. But I think it's good for us to think about the older brother for a couple of minutes and the way that he responds to the grace that his father offers to his brother. Because I think he is a picture of an equal and yet opposite danger that you and I might be in risk of. Not the pursuit of pleasure, but something else. So I already mentioned that the grace the father extends to the younger son is scandalous, right? But nobody feels the scandal of this more than the older son. And he lays it out in verse 29. He says, Father, I've been a really good boy. Where's mine? How can you show love and favor to this wretched son of yours? I won't even call him my brother. I've served you faithfully. I've never disobeyed. I've never got any special treatment for my faithfulness. And actually, if you're a good person, can't you relate to that? Don't you sort of feel the scandal? Don't you sort of think, yeah, actually, this is a little unfair. Like, he didn't even get a goat. This dude went off and squandered his inheritance. But then you think about it a little more deeply. What brought the younger son home? It was the love of the father. And now it is the love of the father that is driving the older son away. Isn't that amazing and tragic? Sadly, the older son, after all of his obedience and all of his good work, he ends up the tragic character in this story. And I would say his error is the error of religion, the error of self-righteousness. It actually ties in very much with what Leonard was teaching last week. See, the older brother believes that he deserves the love of the Father because of his good deeds. He has earned it. There has been a financial transaction here. There is an exchange of goods and services. And he believes that the younger brother does not deserve the Father's love because he has not engaged in that business transaction in the same way. He has done bad deeds, and therefore he deserves 
punishment. And this thinking then reveals to us as we read this parable that the older brother has never known the father's love at all, has he? Because the father does not love either of these sons based on what they have done for him. That is not his motivation. He loves them. Why? Because they are lovely to him. Because they are his children. And in the end, you know what's amazing? The younger son, after all of his depravity, he is the one who comes to finally understand this truth. And that's why he comes home. Because he realizes, my father loves me. What am I doing out here with the pigs? And the older son, in contrast, rejects the gracious love of his father that has always been the basis of their relationship. Not his deeds, but his father's grace. He rejects that. And ironically, you know what happens? He behaves towards his younger brother the same way the younger brother behaved towards the father at the beginning of the story. He treats his brother with a hard-hearted, cold contempt. And he believes that he deserves something special because he's very moral. But the father never based his love for either of his sons on their actions. It was always based on his generous nature. His gracious, tender-heartedness towards them, his children. So here's the main point. The main point when it comes to the older son is the danger of religious pride and self-righteousness. And again, if you're in church, this is probably what you are in more danger of than the pagans out there philandering, drinking up the pig slop of pleasure. And I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me because this is the growing danger of temptation for those of us who have walked in righteousness for any period of time. We begin to become tempted to believe that we have earned this, that we deserve it, that we're better than those people out there, that we are moral, that God must love us and accept us because the financial transaction has taken place. I've done my part, I've gone to church, I've read my Bible, I've been moral and good, and therefore God must and should love me. And the tragedy of the story's ending is that the older son cannot celebrate grace because he believes he has no need for it. He believes that he deserves special treatment because he thinks he's actually earned it. And he believes that his brother should suffer wrong and not grace because that's what his brother deserves. He's done everything wrong. And in the end, he makes the same error his brother made. He essentially says to his father, give me my inheritance. I've earned it. You squandered it on him. Where's mine? And see, the problem the older brother has is that if the father gives his love liberally to the son who has squandered everything, then you know what that means for all of the hard work of the older brother? That it was for nothing if it didn't earn love. Because he's not motivated to do it in love. He's motivated to get his. 
And actually, that's pretty much what the father says in verse 31, that it was never about the work that the older son did. And so in this act of grace shown by the father, what we see in the, son, the older son is that his whole world comes collapsing down. His entire value system is undone. His religious moralism is found to be bankrupt and worthless. The father's love that was supposed to be based on the older son's good behavior, when it's proven that it was never the case, he becomes spiteful and angry. And so while the younger brother repents and he's restored to his father, the older brother can find no joy in grace. He can see no rejoicing in heaven over the return of a sinner. And he believes that he has no need for repentance because like the Pharisees from last week, he's not like other men. He's better than them. So here's the point in all of this. The truth is, we are all the prodigal son. All of us enticed away from God in pursuit of pleasure. And we need to repent and turn back to God and turn away from our sin and come home to the loving care of the Father. But here's the other piece, is that we are all the older brother to some degree, aren't we? Looking down on others because we think that we are better than them. And that too needs to be repented of. This may be even the greatest danger we face as Christians, even greater than the danger of the allure of pleasure. Because eventually at some point, you know what happens with pleasure? You get glutted on it and you realize it doesn't satisfy. When you finally wake up to the fact you're a pig, then you realize maybe I should just go home. But you know what's so insidious about self-righteousness and religiosity and pride? Because it is so moral, it looks so good and it can easily keep us enslaved. Because it doesn't have the same sort of come down moment like coming off of a high of pleasure. We can actually deceive ourselves into thinking that our performance has put God in our debt when that could never be the case. See, moralism leads to hell just as surely as hedonism and pleasure. Because moralism says, I don't need grace. That's not for me. I'm a good person. And fortunately, the remedy for either sickness, the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of moralism, it's the same. The antidote is simply humility and repentance. Turn back to God. Receive his grace. Repent of your love for pleasure or your love for self-righteousness, but either way, come home to the gracious love of God and you will find forgiveness. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks for the precious blood of Christ, for the atoning work that he accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, we will not boast in our own achievements, our own morality, our own efforts. We will boast only in the work of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we remember the body and blood of Christ, that we would be 
reminded of what a treasure he is, so much greater than any hedonistic pleasure. And I pray that we would be compelled to seek Jesus with all of our heart and all of our life and all of our soul. We thank you for your reckless, prodigal love for us, that though we were far from you, you would invite us home, not because we are deserving, but because you are gracious. In Christ's name, amen.